There we go. What's up, folks? My name's Justin Kana. Happy Monday, or maybe happy Tuesday, if you're up late overseas. Welcome to The Emulsion, episode 17, a show where I talk about chef and restaurants and fine dining news that basically mattered to me in the last week or so. It is a late one here in Seattle. I really, really wish I could have kind of a promised time that I go live for you, especially the Facebook Live people, but you know, I'm busy. There's a lot of stuff going on. I hope you listen to this podcast on your own time anyways, whether that's on iTunes or maybe on YouTube or on Facebook. Uh, However you consume this, this is just, you know, a little bit of extra behind the scenes content for you if you're watching on on live, some sort of video platform. Today's beverage is, is water. It's literally just water. I've had a total of probably three caffeinated beverages since 8 a.m. today. And just to make sure I actually can get some sleep tonight, we're just going to go on hydration station with my trusty Nalgene water bottle. If you saw me drink out of that, carry this thing around everywhere. So let's start it up, shall we? Uh, And the first story that I want to talk about is a story that I saw personally all over my my news feed, my personal news feeds over this, this past week. And you might have seen it too. Uh, The article was titled, 12 Chefs and Restaurateurs on the Biggest Sources of Conflict in the Industry. And this actually had more substance than I thought it would, you know? Like, I I naturally assume that a clickbaity title like that, any of those numbered lists, uh, tend to be a little bit more headlines, get you to click, get you to, you know, consume it a little bit. And sometimes that's bad because you end up getting false information just because you ended up clicking on it. Um... But I thought it was going to be disappointing, and it actually comes from uh, a topic that was proposed at an event called Welcome Conference, which was a summit that was organized by uh, Will Will Guidara and uh, Anthony Rudolph. So they're from EMP, 11 Madison Park, and Per Se slash Journey, respectively. Those two gentlemen also like titans in the front of house. sphere. So they proposed this question to people at this summit, this event. Uh, what is the greatest conflict in the industry to to you? And I'm going to kind of share a few from these industry leaders, and then I'm going to kind of share my own personal reactions to their biggest conflicts. And then this is also a great place for you to kind of share your own opinions as, as a listener about your greatest conflict. And as I go through these other chefs' ideas, maybe that'll give you some inspiration. But if you're watching this live, I'd really, really love for this to be our question of the day. And I'd really like you to kind of insert it now uh, as you kind of go through this, as we go through this together. Uh, so let me know your conflicts. I'd love to know. And then we can kind of include those as other people's uh, opinions. But I'll also give my own kind of gripes and what I personally think uh, are some big conflicts. But first, I'll start with uh, a gentleman by the name of Patrick O'Connell, who is at the Inn at Little Washington. And he says, and I quote, I think we need to have more empathy. The restaurant industry isn't isolated. Our collective anxiety level is extraordinarily high right now, and it's affecting people's concentration and their ability to perform. So much of what we are about is taking people out of their reality and making them happy, putting them in a festive uh, frame of mind. The first thing you have to realize is that your own troops have got to feel that way in order to convey it. The question is now, how do you get your people to feel that in spite of having everything going on around them? That they can not be that they can be upbeat, fresh-faced, charming, and happy for their guests because the guests aren't going to come back if they don't have a good time. End quote. 
And if you've watched any of my other videos, you know this, right? I 100% agree here. I'm huge on empathy. I value it over cooking competency, right? I would I would much rather have a cook that has the skills to not only understand what's happening to the people around him or her, or more importantly, the guest that is sitting hopefully in the in the chair, either in the dining room or straight across from them, if they're in sort of a counter style environment. But what stuck out for me here is how he references how restaurants are one of the last places where people can go and sort of escape, right? And how huge of an opportunity that is as as people who uh, cater to people in, in restaurants. And to me, when I thought about it, it it's so crazy. Uh, and only until I started to really like dig into it and think about it, I think that with the exception that you have, uh, like with the exception of sometimes you have that person at your table that kind of starts these conversations about either bad or controversial things that are happening. I, I know that personally, when I go out, my girlfriend and I, we love to go out to eat just because we can kind of enjoy the food and the drink and each other's company without kind of getting struck by advertisements or any news or, or politics or any of that. And we aren't big people into that. And we, you know, we have our own opinions that we have mutual understandings about, but we're not going to go into that. But uh, when you're sitting down, you are basically having a table and and food. There's no there's no screens, right? There's no op- opportunity for any of that to happen. So I thought that was an interesting point, and I had never really, really thought about that until he mentioned that. Um Next up, David Chang speaks from a chef's perspective, and he, he says that himself, all about literally staying alive financially and physically. Uh, he asks a lot of rhetorical questions in his quote that he gave to the article, uh, and I'm quoting again, things are moving so fast it's hard to find your voice in terms of what you want to do. There's so much criticism, so much need to stay relevant, that it's hard to even keep your sanity. But so how do you keep everyone happy? And at the same time, how do you grow? How do you stay relevant? How do you grow in a meaningful way? End quote. And no one has the answer to this yet, right? And if you ask questions like this and you provide the answer, I feel like it quickly becomes saturated, right? Like we're in such a shared economy and shared uh, idea pool that if you have a solution to a problem, everybody kind of jumps on it, which is great because if you can manage to either make that part of your legacy or find a way to maybe profit on it, it's 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 great in that way. But at the same time, once you do that and things do become saturated, you are literally no longer relevant because you end up becoming a commodity. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that I started, personally started doing content, started kind of putting myself out there a little bit more, expressing my thoughts and my ideas on you know, these platforms and these places online where people's attention is so that that relevancy aspect for me can hopefully grow. And of course, with things like this, uh, things like the emulsion, it's all about you guys, right? I want to make sure that I'm giving you facts in the right way. And, and, and of course, my opinion from someone who doesn't just read headlines, whoa, I read into it a little bit more. Um, but as far as David Chang's quote, I agree. Uh, but I'd like to see a little bit more ambition and a little bit less ego from these guys. It's, it's great to pose these questions, but I would like to see a little bit less how could this hurt my restaurant in the short term and how could this uh, provide a legacy play for me long term. Uh, I think that would be really interesting to see, especially from these guys that are operating at the highest level. 
Uh, Brian Canlis from here in Seattle. Uh, he has a re- uh, him and his family have a restaurant called Canlis here in Seattle. Um, and he was at the conference. He actually talked about, and I'm quoting again, the inequality of pay between front of house and back of house. It's been building for 20 years. I know different cities are working on legislation to address this, but they're not writing it with restaurants in mind. We think about it all the time at Canlis, end quote. Again, for me, this is less, I I would love to see less thinking and more action. I know that they've been around forever and it's easy for me to kind of just say do it rather than what it's like to actually implement it when you're in an establishment like that. But from my point of view, when you build a business model one way, you know, what did he say, 20 years ago, and then decide to kind of make a moral decision that kind of financially impacts your operations it's really not easy to pivot like that without either losing people or, you know, kind of denting the entire business when you kind of make a pivot like that. So I'd prefer to see restaurants start from the ground up with these things in mind and kind of hearing these thoughts from veterans can make sure that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, right? So you can hear these people who have been in it for 20 years saying, I wish, you know, I wish we could have done it this way. I think if we take those things to heart when we end up, you know, being the next generation, we can make sure that uh, we don't make those same mistakes. Um, and those are more or less the ones that stuck out to me from this article. I'm sure you've maybe read it uh, over over your weekend or over your week uh, on your time off. But if you did read it and have other thoughts or other quotes that stuck out, I think there's maybe like 12 or 15 different people that they um, highlight in the in the article itself. Um, I think that's probably the point of the article, 12, 12 conflicts. Uh, I should, I should, you know, pay more attention to those numbers in the headlines. I just go for the, the substance. Uh, but yeah, those are the ones that stuck out to me. The rest are more or less pessimistic. So if you want to, I keep losing my microphone stand. Um, so if you want any reason to not open a restaurant, you should definitely read this article. It's linked in the show notes for you. Um, but the quotes kind of vary from, uh, things like rising costs to finding great people, um, but even like competition amongst restaurants and staff, I, I, I certainly found it valuable kind of reading to th- those those quotations. Um, but I think it's it's important to make sure you have a pulse on these things to find out what the people that are in it and doing it have to say. Um, and I think it's great that they're managing to have these hard conversations, right? Instead of having these classic like, hey, how are you? I'm, I'm good, busy. How are you? Uh, conversations that you hear sometimes. I think those are not productive and there are more productive ways to kind of talk about the issues. Uh, so the next story that I want to talk about is actually a, a question from, from you guys. Uh, Connor wanted me to give my two cents on a story out of Portland. And the story there is that there was a spot spot called Cook's Burritos. Uh, and it was run by these two white girls. And I'm not sure this is going where you think it's going. But they closed after divulging to a local paper that they picked the brains. I'm quoting. They quote, picked the brains of every tortilla lady there, which is in a place called Puerto Nuevo in Mexico, and I'm quoting again, in the worst broken Spanish ever. And so basically what they did, end quote, so what they did is they used those recipes that they picked from the brains of these tortilla ladies and opened their spot in Portland, and they bragged about it online, about where they got their ideas. They did the execution themselves back in Portland, and they started literally facing cultural appropriation charges and allegations. 
So hopefully you know where I'm going to go with this if you've been watching me for long enough, but in case this is your first time watching me, to me what's hilarious is everybody's reactions online, right? So in this 2017 world where you're literally forced to be politically correct about everything and people rarely read into it enough and, and, and just kind of fill the gaps when they read these headlines or hear these stories, they fill the gaps with you know, whatever the human mind can 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 muster up. So whether that's racism or bigotry or ignorance, I think this is this is so crazy. So they the article literally cites a spreadsheet that was made for Portland of of like white owned appropriative restaurants, right? And then alternatives of people of places that were owned by people of different ethnicities. Like what is happening? It's so crazy. My example that I that I would like to give for this is have you have you seen the episode of Chef's Table with that's all about Ivan Ramen in New York City? It's literally a white guy making Japanese food just because he he loves Japanese food, right? So at what what my question that I pose is at what point like at what's the minimum length of time that you need to stay in a place to get the okay from whoever makes these decisions that that like you can make food in a different location? right? Like, would I personally get a ton of backlash if I opened a Nordic or Norwegian-inspired spot here in Seattle? I don't know. Like, I lived there for two and a half years. Is that enough time, right? Like, the the Ivan Ramen guy, I, I believe, if I'm not misquoting, he lived there for 10 years, and these girls spent who knows how much time in Puerto Nuevo, but apparently it wasn't enough, and people are getting huge backlash. And I know I know it's a given. Bragging like that, especially on the internet, is not going to get you anywhere good. And it, it was it was a poor choice of words on their part. Uh, and we're so intensely global right now. People, I, I just personally think that people cook best when they're cooking what they're excited about. So if these girls got excited about... Mexican food and making authentic tortillas or, you know, their version of authentic tortillas, that's what they're going to be excited about and that's what's going to make their food good and interesting. At least I would like to hope. Um, we can definitely, definitely get into the comments of this if you want, but... Uh, I'd, because I love your take on this. I mean, there's there's so many countless examples of it, like people going, getting inspiration when they travel, and then coming back to their place where they either have their own roots or they decide that they want to set up shop, right? Uh, Grant Ackett's and Gagan literally both went to El Bui, returned to their own choice of city, and then they straight up copied techniques, like saying that they copied it, whether or not they say it or not, it happened, and they they've managed to achieve massive success with it, right? And you know they cite it as inspiration and part of their journey, not flaunting it in kind of a boisterous way as these girls more or less did. So people people just need to chill out, right? There needs to be less peacocking, a little bit less, and uh, you know on from the from the chefs themselves, and then on the flip side, as kind of a consumer or an audience member or a guest, however you want to call it, I think there needs to just be less getting offended before you kind of put your put your voice out there and and say things in whatever way you decide to say them. Just make sure you watch my show and that you get all sides of the story before you you go out and, and share your opinion. Um, just get your, your your thoughts and perspective. But this is the emulsion, you know, and I rely on your input here too. So keep me posted in the comments. I'd love to know what, what your thoughts are. 
Ooh, new restaurant news. There was a lot of, of big reveals this past week. One of them, literally the afternoon, a few hours after I recorded last episode of The Emulsion, so I was a little bit pissed that I couldn't get that news out to you. Um, some of these are going to be a little bit of rapid-fire style because we literally don't know that much yet. There were just some press releases, uh, and some are going to be a little bit more detailed. And first up uh, is no doubt probably the biggest one that I've certainly been waiting on is is Dave Barron's Spot Dialogue, which is scheduled to open in August in L.A. It is a 800-square-foot, um, they have 10 chairs at tables and 8 seats at a counter so it's 18 seats total it is a you know his his tasting menu bonanza that he's planning so the food uh is going to be kaiseki inspired uh i'm quoting super super complex end quote are going to be his dishes that i quote again you just want to literally lay down and take a nap in a bowl end quote, in style. Uh, adjusting the space itself, uh, you know, playing with the lights or perfuming the room, all of those kind of like um, plays are going to be forced upon you when you when you kind of enter that space. A lot of these concepts uh, Chef Baron, of course, fell in love with and no doubt had a hand in developing uh, when he was at Alinea and next after that. Uh, of course, making these experiences a little bit more intimate in his own way by kind of like downsizing the dining room itself, right? I think Alinea has something like 40 or something seats. It's definitely not 18, uh, but having that small space will allow him to do these things and make sure that he can kind of provide that overall experience to people uh, much more controlled, right? So um, from all the articles I've read about it, everybody's sort of freaking out that it's in uh, this space that's called Third uh, Street Promenade, which is apparently a food hall or a mall in Santa Monica in LA. Uh, but personally, I mean, I'm, I'm all for this, right? I, I, I would love to have a space that utilizes something else at a different time. Uh, like at night, for example, because he's going to be serving dinner, right? Like we we, we did that at, at Lisfaka, right? It was in a museum. So they would close at four and we would open at five. And then we started lunch, but that's, that's another story. Um, Apparently, the space that he has for dialogue is nice and small, so he can keep things nice and intimate, and it's close to the farmer's market, and that basically led him to initially want to make it into a test kitchen. But upon going into the logistics, they just decided it'd be better for him to go pot committed, more or less, and make it a real restaurant. Uh, So having their hands in the test kitchen pot and then inviting people to come in as like a hint to a future restaurant more or less felt wrong, apparently, and that's what they kind of teased out of him in the interview. Um, they also talk a little bit more about some problems that, that they may or may not have with that uh, mall space, uh, which we've literally talked before uh, on the show, kind of keeping things isolated when you have that fine dining experience. Uh, they literally may or may not lock the doors to the space. So like once you're in, you're in uh, just to avoid, quote, a family in baseball caps with ice cream cones walking in to see what's inside, end quote. Uh, so he ends, Chef Baron ends the interview by saying, quote, I know no matter what this restaurant, if it's successful, which I obviously very much hope it is, otherwise I'm in trouble, will outgrow the space, end quote. Uh, and there's literally also hints uh, a few days after that that have come out of him opening a second spot in L.A., which to me is 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 crazy, right? I'm not even on like pop-up every month level, and he's planning two new restaurants. So bravo, Chef Dave. I'm working to get on your level. Uh, but if more news like that uh, on that second restaurant gets dropped and you want to hear about it, go ahead and make sure you hashtag the emulsion and tag me uh, with that article. 
and I'll make sure to find it and cover it on the show and make sure I give my opinion. Uh, next up, and super quick, I don't want to really spend a ton of time on this, the old Noma space is getting a collaboration, a little bit of a collaboration action between uh, Chef Torsten Schmidt, who I actually had the pleasure of doing a guest chef dinner with at least Vodka a few years ago, so he's going to be moving into that old Noma space, um, and they're going to open a new place called Bar, which is a 17-item a la carte menu-focused spot. Um, they're going to be uh, doing quote-unquote casual new Nordic food, um, so they're not really going to deviate from a lot of the styles that they've grown to know and love. Um, they're going to be serving traditional dishes that will pair great with collaborative beers with Scandinavian breweries, and they're also going to be pairing those with Akvit, which is, of course, a very Scandinavian spirit. Um they took that Noma space, added 30 new seats to the normal dining room, um, but they more or less want this space to be a spot where you would go often to eat with your family. They want to keep the check average low, but just keep it a nice, warm, comforting space. Um, but for me, I would definitely have such hard nostalgia if I went back there. Dude, it'd be so crazy, right? That place is always going to be Noma for me, uh, but it's good to hear that it's going to kind of stay within their family. Noma made sure that it went to a great chef, um, and I, of course, wish him and all of his team the best with that new project. Uh, next up, Greg, Bask ba Greg Backstrom, who's been on the show a couple times, friend of the show, is opening a 75-seat French bistro right across from his place, Olmstead in Prospect Heights in Brooklyn. That's crazy, right? Uh, and that's literally all we know. It's it's scheduled to open by the end of the year. Uh, we'll see if that actually happens. I give Greg major, major props. He's grown incredibly fast with Olmstead. He's doing everything right. Um, at least he's more on my speed with getting something stable and then thinking about another project. Uh, but I'm psyched to more or less see the menu for that space. I'd very, be, very much be interested in uh, what Greg has in store for that bistro. If you have a guess on a name, I would love to hear it in the comments. Uh, you know, it, Olmstead, I never would have seen him um, going that direction, uh, naming it after the last name of an individual. Uh, so let me know what you think in the comments. Um, Seattle is going to start taxing sodas. Yep, it's happening. We joined the Municipal Soda Tax Club uh, last week. So that is 1.75 cents per ounce as a tax on drinks served inside the city uh, with a certain uh, level of sugar content. Um, for me, I personally drink soda on the weekends, especially when I'm at a movie theater. Guilty. Uh, but I drink a ton of water and coffee and tea usually, so that this usually this doesn't generally affect me that much, uh, and I don't usually like rely on serving sodas at my you know any of the dinners that I do. Um, but I know it's important, and I I, I want to stress that you should know that it's happening. Um, me for me, it's a little bit more city specific. Um, I don't think this will make me give up soda a hundred percent. Um, maybe it will. A funny point that the article pointed out was that, quote, the big debate with Seattle's tax was whether to tax lattes sweetened with syrup. So the new law apparently exempts milk drinks, but obviously not sugary syrups. So this put sweetened lattes in a weird kind of limbo, end quote. Uh, I don't always put sugar in my coffee. Sometimes do. I don't, I don't really put sugar in my coffee. And I was just kidding earlier. Coke is my guilty pleasure. I will, I'll, I will pay an extra few cents for, for that, for that guilty pleasure of mine. But with that, uh, they're also expected to make between 20 and 46 million, uh, by the end of the year on this new tax. So that, that in itself is pretty crazy. 
Next up is a piece from Grub Street that is actually right up my alley. Uh, I'm, you know, it's talking, uh, it's talking all about how high-end chefs have embraced Instagram. So yes, yes, a hundred times yes. I'm just going to quote a, a little paragraph for you. Uh, quote, the idea that restaurants would allow pictures at all very quickly gave way to customers actively courting Instagram attention. The chefs Grub Street spoke to for its story were reluctant to put hard numbers against a viral dish, and it likely varies too much among restaurants and dishes, but it's undeniable that new restaurants' lighting is designed to make food look better. We'd wager all those white marble tabletops are no coincidence. Chefs now craft dishes specifically for Instagram media appeal, and it's the golden age of food porn. Mario Batali himself describes the jamón de la Belota globe, slices of ham wrapped around a spherical candle that burns with a lardo flame at La Sirena as an Instagram juggernaut. Uh, another dish, a large format paella served tableside, is what used to be called a Kodak moment, is now Instagram fodder, end quote. And it's so true, right? So I remember back in the day when Brooklyn Fair, this spot in Brooklyn, uh, was known as the spot not for allowing any other photos. There was, of course, a few restaurants in Spain that would never allow you to take any photos. And whether or not that was because of, you know, kind of disturbing other diners because these people would come in with tripods and lighting equipment or because people would, you know, I've also heard chefs didn't like it because people would take too long to eat uh, the dish or whether or not chefs wanted their dishes to be shared out there. Sometimes chefs are very protective of their food. Um, if you didn't pay the head price for the menu, you shouldn't get to see what they're serving was the kind of the mindset, but it, it doesn't matter anymore. It's pretty widely accepted now, at least to me and in my circle, right? Um, I'm quoting the article again. In 2009, for example, chefs would have to go out to the restaurants themselves or wait until a cookbook came out to experience a dish or a technique that had been spread by word of mouth. And now they're interviewing uh, David Posey of uh, you know Chicago fame. Now, Posey points out, Noma posts a new dish and you can start to see copies within days, end quote. For better or worse, part of the allure of high-end dining has always been a certain level of mystique and exclusivity. Fine dining is, by design, not for everyone. Armchair eaters watch entire tasting menus unfold on their phones and take video tours of storied dining rooms they know they will never visit, end quote. So we've talked about this before, and of course, I'm all for it. You know, social media is so powerful when used as a tool to kind of scale word of mouth and your ideas and quality photography, and I'm, I'm, I'm personally super, super glad it's being accepted as such. Little, little water sipping action. Do you follow me on Instagram yet? That's something you should do. I'm just saying. At Justin Kana. It's in the show notes. Here's a quote for you. Uh, any chef who says they don't care about critics is either a liar or a fool, end quote. I've left an article in the show notes all about a cook giving a decently detailed recollection of cooking for Pete Wells, the New York Times restaurant critic at Union Square Cafe. He wrote all about it. If you're a cook, you'll kind of get all the adrenaline feels, what that feels like to have the, you know, the chef freaking out and the critic sitting down a few feet away. Uh, and if you're a diner, you'll kind of get a little sneak peek at all the care taken with VIPs. I'm not going to quote any of the story, just kind of leave it as something that you can enjoy on your own time. I'm going to do kind of a quickie version of the uh, non-industry stories uh, for today uh, because I have other priorities. Um, let's see where we're at here. Um, 
So yeah, I'm going to do a quickie version of the non-industry stories and simultaneously go live here on Instagram uh, because I hyped up an unboxing, right? And maybe you're here for it. Maybe you joined the Facebook Live group for it, uh, or maybe you're here on Instagram because you saw that I posted about it. Um, But that is going to technically be our last story, but while we wait for the Instagram live feed to, to, to fill up, uh, the non-industry story for the week is a tie. It is a tie between uh, iOS 11, which was announced at WWDC last week, Apple's developer conference, um, as well. So if you use iPhone, uh, whether or not you're a chef or front of house person, there's a lot of great features that um, got announced and that you can kind of look forward to this fall. Uh, there's a huge recap of that that I left in the show notes. Um, also, you know, tied for that is the new Black Panther trailer. Can we talk about that for a second? So, so dope. Marvel movies keep killing it, and I'm I'm super excited uh, for the Black Panther uh, movie coming out. The trailer is is such a good reveal. It 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 kind of shows a darker story. I tend to gravitate towards those darker Mar- Marvel movies. Um, welcome, Instagram fam. Um, you're at the tail end of the Emulsion podcast if you're just uh, joining. It It is being recorded. We're live on Facebook. We're live on Instagram. We're recording for the podcast that goes live on iTunes. Um, but everything that I've just talked about is going to be in the show notes. Uh, I hyped up an unboxing in my Instagram story, and hopefully you're here for that, uh, regardless of whether you're here for that or not. We're doing it. Um, So I'm going to kind of quickly spiel the story um, as I unbox it because I kind of hate those places that just unbox things and just make you watch. Um, So uh, I have to read this. So Nick Muncy, who is the former pastry chef of Qua in in San Francisco, announced his own chef-driven publication, and it's called Toothache. And what I have here is that first issue. looks like that that's what it looks like that's what it looks like for everybody live and involved um so they're doing two issues of this every year um sans editors or any outside media which is super super important so nick of course has tons of followers on instagram and he has his own blog that is very very popular where he publishes uh restaurant and chef quality recipes um so this is the first issue here it is issue number one says that right on the cover. Um, and it apparently has 80 different recipes inside uh, from San Francisco chefs and chefs only. And I'm just kind of, you know, browsing through the first few pages. Maybe I should kind of rotate it around. Um, beautiful, beautiful photography so far from what I've what I can see. Um, he he apparently did a lot of the work for the pot for the the magazine itself himself uh, he learned how to do uh some skills in adobe and went ham on this on this magazine um i'm gonna l- leave a link to the show notes in the show notes so wait you can buy this yourself um so i'm looking at how to make your own uni batarga dill oil buttermilk sauces earl gray pork ribs with piccalilli and avocado um these are from restaurants all over San Francisco. Foie gras ice cream with tonka bean and tequila caramel. This is from Californios. Um, this guy, Val Cantu, who is great. If you don't know who he is, you should, you know, get on it. Um, 
This is a very, very strange unboxing. <laughs> uh, so well done. My mic stand keeps falling. Well done to uh, Nick Muncie. Uh, if you're in San Francisco, you can actually pick this up yourself at either Omnivore Books or this shop called The Human Condition, which I've never been to. Um, but, you know, I'm going to read this tonight for sure. Uh, if you have any questions for me on this magazine, go ahead and leave them in the comments. Uh wherever you're you're consuming this um but with only publishing two issues a year uh maybe i should slow down on this this is nick muncie for everybody who doesn't know who he is this is what he looks like this is what he looks like um yeah maybe i need to slow down wait and see what 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 they have in store for episode two but I'll keep you posted. I'm sure you'll see a bunch of feedback as everybody else gets their editions as well. But this has been an emulsion unboxing. The first ever emulsion unboxing. Regardless, this has been episode 17 of the emulsion. Uh, wherever you've been watching, live here, live there, live there. If you're on YouTube or maybe you're on the podcast on iTunes, I really, really want to thank you for listening. Please share this podcast with, on any of your social networks. Uh, I know there's someone you work with or someone you know that could use a little bit more industry knowledge, and we definitely talked about a lot of great stories today. Go ahead and tag me and use hashtag the emulsion, and I'll be sure to say hi. Thanks in advance. I'm Justin Kana. Have a good one. <laughs>